You're listening to the O'Reilly Radar Podcast. I'm your host, Jen Webb. In this week's episode, I sit down with Mary Yoko Brannon, who's the president and CEO of CLIA Consulting. She's the Jaroslawski East Asia Japan Chair at the Center for Asia Pacific Initiatives, and she's a professor of international business and research director at the University of Victoria Gustafsson School of Business. Mary Yoko is an expert in ethnomethodology and qualitative studies of complex cultural organizational phenomena. She spends a lot of time focused on how changing cultural contexts affect technology and how to leverage cultural identity in the global workplace. We unpack all that in this episode and talk about how Mary Yoko's proposed ethnographic thinking approach can address language and culture gaps in the global marketplace. Enjoy the episode. Mary Yoko, let's start by talking a little bit about your background and what you do now. Okay, I'm, I'm an organizational anthropologist. And what does that mean? It means that, uh, like anthropologists study faraway tribes and whatnot, I study organizations as if they were tribes. I'm interested in organizational culture and how organizational culture uh, comes combines with national cultural differences, as well as occupational cultural differences, and how people can integrate those and work together. And one of your major areas of research, if I understood right, is semiotics. Is that correct? That's right, yeah. And can you talk a little bit about what that is? Yeah, so semiotics is, is from functional linguistics, actually. Mm-hmm. And it's a study of the meaning of words and how when we use words, um, the, the articulation of the word is just one part of it. It's, it's the signifier. But it, what goes along with it is the meaning of the word, which is the signified. And what's interesting to me, because I work on, uh, I, my work is on cultures and cross-cultural uh, communication in organizations, is how the semiotics of words change when you, when you take them into new contexts. Mm-hmm. I can give you a, an example. Yes, please. Uh, for example, the word bonus. And in many uh, companies worldwide, English is the lingua franca, the, the mm-hmm. main language that's used. And oftentimes, uh, managers think that if they're using an English word and the people that they're working with actually speak English, that they're communicating the signified with the signifier. But a, a very good example of how this often doesn't happen is the word bonus. The word bonus in English means you get paid for something extra. Mm-hmm. You get extra pay. And it usually is associated with having made more money or a certain percentage more than was expected. And you don't get the bonus if you haven't done that. In Japan, a bonus is an expected part of your pay. And you get paid a bonus twice a year, and that bonus is equal to two to three times your monthly salary. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. And so if, if an American manager were to take away a Japanese person's bonus, right. it would violate the employment laws. Right. I had a similar situation when I worked in Germany. They called it, uh, basically it was Urlaubsgeld, vacation yeah. money, but yeah. they, did the, they did the same thing. But it was just, just expected and you don't part. take it away. Right, yeah. right. There are a couple of use cases that you talk about in relation to this. Nokia and Walt Disney come mm-hmm. to mind. Can you share those, those stories? Yeah, so that's also another example of how I work with linguistics and, and language. And I probably should clarify that language is interesting to an anthropologist because it's the most visible part of culture. But it's really just the tip of the iceberg. Underneath the artifact of language, there's values and assumptions. And so really what you can see and what's visible of culture is only 5%. Mm-hmm. And so there's a lot of ways in which communication can derail. And so with Nokia and Disney, what was interesting to me is that they represented two very different types of 
corporate languages that are spoken, and Nokians and other engineering-type-based com mm -hmm. companies um, have very context-specific language. So the language that's developed and used, the acronyms and whatnot, they're, they're very uh, acronyms are rampant in engineering cultures, you know, and also just new neologisms, words that like Safari or um, that just a lot of words that didn't exist before that now exist in engineering companies. But uh, the problem with uh, context-specific languages like Nokia mm -hmm. being one of these is that they don't communicate to people outside of right. their organization. So the earlier failure of Nokia to get on the smartphone um, uh, wagon was that they weren't able to communicate outside of their own context. Huh. And they weren't able to just to, to see um, ways in which they could collaborate with the smartphone makers uh, and get outside of their own language, as it were. Um, so having a context a context specific language risks a kind of paralysis. Mm -hmm. You know, Disney, on the other hand, is completely the opposite. It started out as a concept rich language, but context poor. So. Um, they invented the whole notion. All their vocabulary is invented. So the happiest space in the world, right. pixie dust. Um, you know, they even uh, call their ride operators the cast and the crew. You know, and so they they have all this language that's specific to Disney, that's specific to delivering this notion of the happiest place in the world mm -hmm. that could be anywhere. And not not they don't look at the context. In fact, they erase their context by having their theme park um, built in such a way that you don't see outside of the theme park. Um, so when they went to expand their operations to Tokyo, the first international expansion mm -hmm. that they did, uh, they didn't, re they, and because they had been so successful in their first expansion to Orlando, they really f felt like they had a winning formula in their um, conceptualization of what is the happiest place in the world. And since Tokyo Disneyland was so successful, in fact, it continues to be the most successful Disney, uh, theme park, actually, in the world, even in the economic downturn of Japan, Disney just felt they had a winning uh, business model. And so when they went to France, they didn't really worry about whether or not their concept design would fit France. They just felt like they had the right concept, and they were just worried more about um, the contract that they made with the French governments, um, their, their venture partner, so that they wouldn't lose as much of their returns as they did with the Tokyo uh, land company. Right. Um, and so they concentrated on the financial arrangements and didn't look to see whether or not the French and the European context would accommodate them putting together a theme park that could deliver in their concept. And they really did poorly in France, and they're still recuperating from that loss. Right, well, that's interesting. And you've proposed something called ethnographic thinking right. as a possible solution to these cultural and language problems. Can you talk a little bit about what that is? Yeah, so ethnographic thinking is, um, it may sound a little bit like another buzzword, like design <laughs> thinking. Um, but the difference is that, uh, first of all, if you just take the word ethnograph, mm -hmm. ethno means people, and graph is documenting. So it's really documenting the day-to-day -day life of people. And you do so by, by observing what the people that you're interested in as an organization do. Um, anthropologists document the everyday life of Samoans or mm -hmm. uh, other different part, peoples in the parts of the world. What ethnographic 
ethnographic thinking does in organizations is you document, for example, the how the user uh, lives with the product or the service or um, that that you're engaged in making. And so, rather than pushing a product onto the consumer, you think about okay, um, how is the consumer going to engage with the product? And you do much more of a deeper dive into the day-to-day life, mm-hmm. and then you would design um, whatever it is your service, your product is, to fit in with the everyday life of the consumer, right. going much deeper into um, understanding their context. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So one of the the consul- a lot of the consulting work that you do is uh, with company leaders. Mm-hmm. What kind of advice do you give? Corporate leaders who are attempting maybe to make you know changes to their culture in, internally, or you know even those trying to embark on a, a significant cultural shift. I do work a lot with companies in terms of um, understanding their organizational culture and being able to work on changes in their organizational culture. In particular, I work a lot with mergers and acquisitions mm-hmm. and integrating cultures in that right. case, especially when they're uh, of different national cultures mm-hmm. as well as organizational cultures. Um, and I guess the most important advice that I would have is that culture is a really big thing, you know, and, and it's really, um, I like to think of an acronym, uh, use an acronym for culture, which kind of helps people understand the severity of changing it, which is that I see culture as a help system, mm-hmm. H-E-L-P, habits, yeah. expectations, language, and perceptions. And so different cultures have different help systems. So when you're talking about changing a culture, you're talking about changing a person's help system. That's a big deal, right? Mm-hmm. And so, to, and people don't like to change their help system. It helps them get, get on with their day. And so I think what's really important to keep in mind with understanding culture and understanding shifts in culture is that you need to make sure that you're targeting the change appropriately mm-hmm. to the appropriate group of people. So it depends on what the task at hand that the people, the group that you're thinking of uh, helping to change is involved with. So for example, if you're, if you're co-specializing, so if there's a partnership that's about co-specialization, now, talking earlier about, for example, Airbus. Mm-hmm. Um, Airbus was a collaboration between three different countries, France, Germany, and England, on making an airplane. And the English made the wings, and the French made the electronic console, and the Germans made the fuselage. And they didn't really need to know how to do each of those things. Mm-hmm. because they made them separately. So for that, the French didn't have to become German and the Germans English. They didn't really need to learn about each other's uh, national cultural help systems. They just, and they really didn't even need to synchronize their organizational cultures. They just needed to make the separate parts and bring them together and put them together. So in that regard, you don't have to have a cultural shift, even though you're having a merger um, of three different organizations from three different countries. On the other hand, if certain groups in your organization are going to co-produce with another organization, or if different groups in your organization are going to co-produce together, like sales and production, you know, then that's a big, oftentimes a big cultural, um, there's cultural clashes between production and sales because sales is trying to sell something that hasn't been produced yet, et cetera. cetera. So there, there has to be synchronization. And Mm -hmm. so there has to be 
some kind of a compromise, some kind of an understanding of one way to work, one help system for sales and production. Um, on the other hand, if, if you're going to, if you're thinking about co-learning and innovating, then you have to have some, uh, there, that's the most important, to have a complete culture shift. Mm -hmm. So those people that are going to co-create then we'll need to have a, a very shared culture that would take a longer amount of time right? Uh, to, to get to. And how do companies go about that? Do they do sort of, you know, like a foreign exchange student? I'm imagining this in my head, like how would you address that particular challenge? A, 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 when you're actually changing your culture completely. Right, right, when you need yeah. everybody to, to be to, on the same. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, what I do with companies is do a cultural audit, you know, the gap analysis, you know, right. where is it that you want to get to and where are you now? And then you bring people along. Um, and mainly, it's very important that everyone sees the reason for the change mm -hmm. and understands kind of why that's important and how, what else has changed to, to so that they need to change. Right, yeah. right. And one of your areas of expertise is leveraging cultural identity in a global work organization. Yeah. I think this might be what we were just talking about, but can you talk a little bit more specifically about that and, yeah. and what that is? Yeah, that's, it's related, but it's a little bit different and it's exciting work that I'm doing now, actually, because um, when I was first starting out, uh, people like me, I was born and raised in Japan. Um, educated in Japan and, and then came over to college. Uh, and, but I don't look like I'm Japanese. You know, I'm an American born and raised in Japan. And so even though I'm bicultural, I, I don't look it. Mm -hmm. And so when I went to college at Berkeley, the people that I went to college with just expected that I was like any other California. And I, you know, dating and all of that, whatever Californians did to have fun would be normal to me. But I hadn't grown up in that context, so a lot of it was a big culture shock to me. Right. Um, now, more and more, people like me are the new demographic in the workforce. So we have more and more people who are bicultural and more and more people who are multicultural in the workforce. Mm -hmm. And what's interesting is that, that the people who hire them, neither the people who hire them nor the people themselves, know what kind of skill sets they bring to an organization. Because really, our, the census data is all about, you know, are you American, are you Japanese, are you Chinese, or, you know, or if you look like you have a different ethnicity, then people, you know, might assume that a Chinese-American knows a lot about China. So if right. Google's going to China, they might ask them for their opinion, but it might be they know nothing about right. China, you know, <laughs> then, yeah. Um, and I probably know more about Japan than a lot of Japanese-Americans if they've never been to Japan, for example. So, um uh, so, so there's various different skill sets that these people have. And some are culture-specific skill sets. They know about different cultures. But other are cultural general skill sets that they actually have higher perceptual acuity. They notice differences that matter. Or they can handle complexity more because they've had to most of their life. Um, so, And these kind of skill sets are very, very useful for today's global organization. And so myself and a think tank that I've been leading for the last 10 years have been kind of surfacing what are these skill sets and trying to understand how corporations can value, recognize and value them right. and utilize them. It's interesting. So do you think there's a, a big shift in the corporate landscape or is this the, the importance of culture just becoming something that we're aware of now? 
Is there something changing yeah. or, or is this just some new, new direction, new knowledge? I think there's really big change. And first of all, I, I, I think that the dominance of the West is, is no longer the case. Mm -hmm. And so we're shifting from a West to the East in terms of transferring knowledge to the East to the West and South to North. Uh, more and that's that's a very big change. That's a, these are countries um, both the South and when we talk about Latin America and when we talk about Asia, we're talking about collectivist societies, mm -hmm. societies that are very very different than our own uh, in the West. Societies where people think more about group uh, um, and have different ways in which they manage mm -hmm. groups. Um, they don't think about self-actualization as being the pinnacle on Maslow's needs hierarchy, you know. And so managing and collaborating with people that, again, have a very, very different health system is extremely important. At the same time, English as a lingua franca is not going to be around for much mm -hmm. longer. We're going to have multilingual organizations where sidebars in Chinese, sidebars in Spanish, it's going to be much more of a norm. Right. And um, work that I've done has shown that monolingual people tend to be quite paranoid about other language being spoken, whereas people who grow up as polyglots or having heard lots of different languages mm -hmm. growing up are much more likely to be patient with other languages being spoken and, and are likely to say, okay, they need to speak a, a sidebar in another language just to expedite matters as opposed to, oh, they're talking about me. Right, you know, right. That kind of thing. Yeah. Well, so to close out our conversation, I want to I want to ask a very general, personal question. Sure. What people or projects are you following now? What kinds of things are you finding personally fascinating? Yeah. So I I'm finding this work on biculturals, um, immigrant talent, mm -hmm. very very important, and the policies uh, that governments are adopting um, for immigrants. Uh, more and more, there's migration and um, for all sorts of reasons. But there's a new wave of migration, um, and I feel it a lot now because I live in Canada, and um, they have a policy of multiculturalism, which is very distinct from the American policy of the melting pot. Right. Yeah. And, um, you know, and I, I, neither one has been really successful in leveraging difference, uh, which is what I think we really need more and more now. So I'm, I'm quite interested in, in, in policies that, uh, and, and impacting upon policies at the macro level. Hmm. Uh, and I guess, I guess as you get older, you get interested in, in the world more yeah. you know, than just a kind of micro understanding of things. Yeah. Well, interesting. Well, thank you so much for talking with me today, Mary Yoko. You're very welcome. You can reach Mary Yoko through her Twitter handle, at Mary Yoko Brannon. Thank you for joining us. If you like the show, remember to subscribe to the O'Reilly Radar podcast through iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, or SoundCloud so you never miss an episode. <laughs>